This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where each week we examine regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the challenges that individuals confront and the solutions they discover as they strive to build resilient communities in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. From Peru to Australia, water stresses are rewriting the way mines are built, regulated, and operate. Today, Upmanu Lal, the director of the Columbia Water Center in New York City, joins Circle of Blue's Keith Schneider to dig deep into scarcity, pollution, and flooding related to mining. These challenges are bringing new levels of financial scrutiny and disclosures related to mining investments around the world. Hi, Manu. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Keith? Good. So for our listeners, we're talking today with Upmanu Lal. He's a professor of engineering at Columbia University. He's director of the Columbia Water Center, and he has been a great, great friend and source of all things water for us at Circle of Blue. And uh, Manu, several years ago, sent me to Meghalaya, India, to report on the incredible story around coal mining and water pollution and human rights that was occurring in Meghalaya, India. So, Manu, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith. Today we're going to talk about mining, mining and water. And I know, Manu, that you've been involved in really an interesting project at the Columbia Water Center that looks at financing and mining, mining's future. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to with the mining project at Columbia? Sure. Basically, we got into this because we have a sponsor, which is the Norges Bank Investment Management Group, and they are long-term investors. They have close to a trillion dollars under investment from pension funds and the like. So they are very interested in making investments that are environmentally sound and socially sound. And they were interested in looking at something like mining, which poses long-term risk to investors and what aspects of it actually are long-term risk. So we got interested in that issue because from a sustainability perspective, this is the kind of thing that could make a difference because if we can come up with good understanding of what the financial impacts might be and what are the factors that cause them in the long run, then investment community takes note of that, then we have the opportunity to achieve some change in the marketplace, which then leads to better behavior from different companies because they start addressing those risks. So that was sort of the motivation of what we got into. Now, in the beginning, the framing of this question from the investment community was coming from social and reputational risk as related to conflicts over water and mining, as well as the concern that several mining companies had recently spent large sums of money on desalination projects in Chile, as well as pumping that desalinated water up a thousand meters and more, which is also very expensive to maintain operations. And the government of Chile was talking about requiring desalination for all mining operations. So this was being perceived as a risk related to water scarcity. And that was a driving factor. What we wanted to do was to use that as one of the elements we look at and look more comprehensively at what may be the water-related or environmental-related risks associated with mining in different enterprises. To restrict ourselves, we chose to look at copper and gold primarily and to look at Chile, Peru, the United States, Canada, 
South Africa and Australia as candidate locations where we wanted to develop an understanding. So that's kind of where we are. And the issues that we were looking at were the scarcity issue, the pollution issue, the issue of accidents such as tailing dam failures, the issue of flooding as well as spills that happen in transport of materials from the mine. And with pollution, we were given the long-term interest, we were interested in cumulative effects uh, in space and time of mining activities on water quality and quality. We, you know, Sickleboo and our work globally, we've tripped over the same kinds of trends involving new kinds of financial scrutiny over large projects, including mining, but also including hydropower dams, coal mines, uh, big farms, oil pipelines. We are finding that the financiers are more sensitive now to the risks of their investments, maybe than they've ever been around these, these projects. And is that, are you finding the same thing? So at least the issues are getting attention from all investment sectors that uh, we've interacted with in the process, not just our project sponsor. I guess I should clarify that ours is a research project. It's not a consultancy to not just bank as to how they should invest their money. They are investing in this project to increase the state of knowledge more broadly in a way that is available to any investor rather than just them. So having given that clarification, we have been talking to a lot of people in the financial industry and in the mining industry to try to understand what they do and do not do and what they pay attention to. And what you said is exactly right. There is greater and greater interest in the in these issues. However, I will say that by and large, until last year, most of these groups were zooming in on the water scarcity issue. And I would say that I don't think they had a very good understanding of that issue to some extent. The issue that got added to their list of concerns last year was tailing down failures. The issue of cumulative effects is not really on their horizon still by and large, and the issue of flooding is also not there. One of the things that we've been trying to get across to these folks is that many mining companies and regulators of mining do have standards and risk analyses that are asked for, even as early as in the environmental impact assessments. And these are part of the disclosure that the mining companies make to investors. However, the level of diligence that goes into those things is not usually that high and not usually that location specific. So the way that we are suggesting that the finance community look at this issue is in terms of the residual risk relative to those disclosures rather than the absolute risk associated with their location. So this may sound abstract, so let me clarify that. So let's take the water risk example. It could well be that a mine is located in a generally arid area without very Uh, without a very high water endowment. That is disclosed and an investor takes note of it and prices in the one and a half billion dollars that the mining company is spending to bring water from the ocean and the associated increase of about 2% typically in the energy cost of pumping that water up to the location. Uh, 2% of operating expenses increase. Now, the reality is that once you have done that, If that breaks the deal, you're not investing in that mine and that's it. So if you've decided to invest in that mine, that's where the idea of what is the residual risk to that particular decision kicks in. 
Now, in this put in this example that I just gave you, perhaps the residual risk with respect to water scarcity is now right. low because you're essentially taking desalinated water. If I change the example a little bit, it could be that the mine declares, uh, let's say the mine is operating in California, and they declare that they have a senior water right that goes back to 1870. And as a result, they, they feel very comfortable that they have enough water. However, the California drought that we have experienced recently has been five-year drought with a small break in between and may likely continue for another year or two. In that kind of a scenario, it could happen that even your senior water right from 1870 is no longer honored. And that's the residual risk you're facing. And if there's a conflict that emerges over water or your use of water during that phase, that could possibly be damaging in terms of the relationships with other competitors for the use of that water and present a new risk. So the residual risk idea is to take a look at what has essentially been addressed and what the remaining exposure is. So with regard to the pollution side and with regard to the flood side and tailing dams failure side, I think the residual risks are generally very high and are not priced into any disclosure uh, or there's very high uncertainty associated with the disclosure. You know, Manu, yours is a theoretical academic exercise, very important, but in our in reporting, we're finding actual water stresses causing very significant civic unrest. Mm -hmm. That is hampering mining development all over the world. So the Congo mine in Peru, the Barrack Gold mine in Chile, Philippines is now regulating hard rock mining much more extensively than they did because of water pollution and water um, conflicts in Mongolia. I, I tripped over this in Mongolia. In Australia, hard rack mines near Adelaide and how much water is available. And the point is that in, the, in this century, there are twice as many people in, you know, in places than there were in the 20th century. And, and mining companies cannot land on regions to mine at the scale that they mined in the 20th century. So there's a civic unrest and scale issue here that I think is very new. And, and my question is, how come the banks are so slow to recognize this? So I think that, you know, a few things to say about that. You're right that there is an increasingly competitive atmosphere out there and the regulators are starting to pay attention. However, if you look at the water costs associated with these mines, they are really insignificant in as a fraction of their overall operating expenses. So what you're talking about is applicable to whether or not a mining operation is able to acquire a new mine, and hence it's a risk for the growth of that particular company. And what I was talking about are risks that are outstanding for mining operations that are already in progress. So that's the distinction I would draw. Common factor between those two is the concept of a stranded asset, which is this is an operating asset which then runs into a conflict because they didn't adequately address the needs of the community around them in terms of water quantity and quality, and they lose their so-called license to operate. That is similar to not getting the license to operate in the first place. So I think that aspect is definitely there. In terms of why the banks are slow, slow to recognize these factors, that's I don't know that I have a good answer for that, but I think that there is a broader movement in the investment community where there is a rapid growth of investment in environmental sustainability and governance related metrics. But I would still say that while the growth rate is very impressive, you know, 30-40% a year in terms of money that is going in that direction, the total amount of money that is going in that direction is probably insignificant relative to the overall investment in the marketplace. 
So those mines which are established are dealing with water risks as an operational challenge, right? Yes. And those mines that are proposed have to deal with water risks, not only quantity, how they manage their wastewater. That dimension includes how that mine will be accepted in the community in which it's proposed. So there's two there's two dimensions to this, what you're Correct. talking about in terms of yeah. mining and water. Yeah. Correct. The one thing I would say there is that, you know, we also see that in many cases, there could well be community opposition to mining just on the principle of it, and that it is not necessarily a scientific assessment of what the impacts would be. And in part, that could well be because there is not a scientific assessment of those impacts that's being done in any credible way by either party. And, and you know, this is a this is a tremendously large industry, trillion dollars a year in revenue, just yeah. a hard rock mining piece of it. Yeah. So are we going to be seeing, do you think, closures of operating mines based on the water risks that you're talking about? I think some of them, you know, will have at least temporary closures. I guess there's a flavor of this story that's worth uh, elaborating a bit on. And that is that some people have the perception that the developed countries, uh, Europe, North America, uh, have much better regulatory structures and hence have lower governance-related risks than in the developing countries. And hence, most of these conflicts are concentrated in developing countries. My view of that is the following. First of all, it's not altogether clear to me that that's necessarily true. In the applied sense, it may be true. If you look at simply the regulations in the different countries, they are really not that different with regard to the environment. So the enforcement is where they differ. The corruption level is where they may differ. However, in terms of a practical matter, trying to find data in the United States as to what have been the remediation actions, what have been the releases of pollutants, and what has been the water quality downstream and who's done what about it is just as challenging as in Peru or you know China or other places. And what we find is that there's work other people have done, Ann Mast and Jim Coopers, for example, that show that typically in the United States, remediation costs taken on by the US government because the mine did not pay for it and the mine closed have been four to five times what the remediation bonds that were posted were. What we find also is that while there is one part of the government that collects the data on regulated pollutant releases and another part of the government that collects the data on water quality in the river or aquifer downstream, those two departments don't even come together to detect that there is a problem for decades uh, and do something about it. So frankly, I think the level of failure may differ slightly, but there is definitely failure on the part of the governments to actually exercise the control that they are mandated to do. And, you know, we we crossed that in Mongolia, in the South Kobe Desert, where Rio Tinto built the Oyutogoi mine, copper and gold mine in the middle of the desert. And Mongolia's capacity to regulate the construct, design and construction of that mine, which is the most modern, you know, water conserving mine that I've ever seen, is extraordinary. So, yeah, I mean, could that have been done in the U.S.? I suppose it could have been done in the U.S., but here you have a young dem- democratic government that was elected mm-hmm. and grew strength from its e- environmental and e- ecological principles and actually put them to work in the South Gobi, helped by, you know, very strong civic support from the herders that were living in the region. So, yeah, I mean, it's, the regulatory aspects of this are, are significant all, all over the world, and the difference in regulation is profound if you go between India in China and Australia, totally different regimes at work. Yeah, you know the reporting requirements actually are not that different. 
the environmental impact requirements are usually not that different. They may be even more stringent in the developing countries, but the final outcomes, unfortunately, you know, are bad everywhere, which is something that needs to, you know, be highlighted and addressed. And I would say that, you know, the perception issue that I spoke of earlier as to why many communities oppose these mines, that draws from the fact that they realize that the regulatory enterprise is not really going to help them. Well, Manu, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure. Really appreciate it. This has been another installment of Hotspots H2O. You've been listening to a conversation between Upmanu Lal, director of the Columbia Water Center, and Circle of Blues' Keith Schneider. Today's podcast is part of Circle of Blue's extensive coverage of mining and water risk. Read more at circleofblue.org. I'm J. Carl Ganter.